Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Before we know it, uh, Christmas will be here. Hard to believe that tonight is uh, December the 20th. Uh, Earlier this evening, my wife and I went out for a a ride and got to see um, homes decorated um, in in a neighborhood not far from where we live. And it was really nice. Um, It's just nice to be able to see uh, decorations um, that are, you know, lively and uh, and enjoyable to see. Not just because it's Christmas, but uh, decorations themselves are a way of uh, keeping hope alive, even in this time of uncertainty. So, um, you know, just, you know, taking little trips like that, even for an hour, um, can uh, bring some kind of joy. But here we are again talking about uh, John Ollers, the Swamp Fox, how Francis Marion saved the American Revolution. What we're going to be discussing tonight or wherever you all are in the world, whether it's nighttime or daytime, but what we're going to be discussing is uh, new leadership coming to the Continental Army in the South, or let alone, I should say, the Southern Continental Army. It seems like leaders have been co- have been coming and going left and right, but what we're going to be learning in this particular podcast episode is that a new leader is going to be emerging. He's already uh, made an emergence from... Um, engagements up north, but his presence in South Carolina, not just in South Carolina, for the, but for the uh, southern colonies, is going to be one that will um, change the direction of the war in the south in the direction that uh, has been sorely needed. And I think it's pretty fair to say that we all know what the current direction has been. The only person who's been keeping the uh, cause for independence alive has been Francis Marion. But we're going to learn that uh, while, yes, what Marion is doing is great, there needs to be um, someone else that can come into play to take what Marion has done and now take it to a different uh, level so that um, momentum itself can get shifted back to where it uh, to where it needs to be, uh, in order to ensure that um, the chances of a long of a long term victory in the South, not just at one battle, but victories in general, will turn the tide to where the British, in the end, um, realize that their chances of winning this war may not have been as strong all along as they thought. So that's my synopsis, but let's get down to um, what we're going to be uh, discussing tonight, or wherever you all are in the world. <laughs> of course, where I am right now, it's nighttime, but I also have to be reminded with so many other people listening in the world, throughout the world, that some of, some of you all right now, it's daytime. So tonight's bonus, or leadoff bonus question for this episode is the following. Was Francis Marion still corresponding with Horatio Gates by early December of 1780? Yes, he was. The problem, though, is that Marion doesn't know that Gates has already been replaced. So you have to remember that uh, we don't have breaking news alert uh, notices. Of course, the technology then wasn't sophisticated like we have uh, today in terms of breaking news alerts. On the other hand, it's a good thing that Gates has finally been uh, relieved of his duties given the debacles that occurred at uh, Camden and at uh, Fishing Creek uh, from August. But um, 
Gates, I mean, but uh, Marion doesn't know what's going to be in store. But one thing for sure is that um, December 3rd of 1780, George Washington turns the reign of command over to Major General Nathaniel Green, who will be the new commander for the Southern Continental Army. But the irony to it was that um, this um, decision of George Washington's just wasn't an overnight thing. The um, appointment in terms of um, appointing Nathaniel Green actually took place in mid-October of 1780. But Green himself would not arrive down south until December 2nd. He um, first arrived at uh, Horatio Gates' headquarters in Charlotte, North Carolina, to basically say to General Gates, Hello, um, I'm Nathaniel Green, and I have been instructed by General Washington to relieve you of your current duties. Well, you know, it's easy when we learn about the American Revolution and the war itself. We're always focused on George Washington and Marquis de Lafayette. Because when we think of the revolution itself in terms of the patriots and the leadership, we always think of George Washington. But we also forget about some of his other um, top uh, generals and leaders within his inner circle. And one of them just so happens to be Nathaniel Green. So what is there to know about Nathaniel Green's early life before and leading up to to the American Revolutionary War's beginnings? Well, for starters, he was born in July of 1742 around Warwick, Rhode Island. And ironically, he was born a year before Thomas Jefferson, Matter of fact, George Washington would have been 10 years old in 1742, uh, being the year Green himself was born. <laughs> John Adams was only seven. So some of our forefathers were just uh, youngsters by the time Nathaniel Green comes around. But Green himself is born into a prosperous Quaker family. So if you would think, okay, he's born into a prosperous Quaker family or just a prosperous family in general, that automatically means he's going to go to a fine college or he could go to England to learn um, to learn how to become a gentleman and just learn all the um, fundamental um, studies on whatever it is you want to learn that will make you successful. Well, I will admit this. Uh, Nathaniel Green did not have a whole lot of military training, and he also did not have much formal education. Well, that right there, that would tell us that he's at a real bad disadvantage. But I, I was really blown away by this. Nathaniel Green taught himself what it took to become a military leader. In other words, he didn't go to military school. He taught himself everything there was to learn in order to um, be successful in the military, just from, from the lowest of ranks to eventually what it would take to get to a high-ranking status. But all of this was taught through books from his 250-volume personal library. Well, he had a mini-library, kind of like what Thomas Jefferson had at Monticello, except whereas Jefferson wasn't in the military, Nathaniel Green's library was dedicated, I think it's fair to say, to uh, mostly military affairs. In 1774, which also was the, the year that the First Continental Congress convened in Philadelphia, 
Green himself organized the Kentish Guards, or the Rhode Island State Militia, in opposition to England. By 1775, he was promoted from a private to Major General of Rhode Island State Army and eventually to a brigadier in the Continental Army. Think about this, guys. He's not even 40 years old yet, and look what he has done in a short amount of time. It's fair to say that Nathaniel Green did his homework well before revolution itself or separation from England was even considered. So our next bonus question is the following. Did Nathaniel Green have many engagements up north in the war's early years prior to Britain's southern strategy? Yes. The battles ranged from the siege of Boston to Harlem Heights and Fort Washington, New York, to crossing the Delaware River with George Washington on Christmas Day. And of course, it wasn't just the two of them, but the but what was left of the Continental Army at that time, about 2,400 men who crossed the Delaware River on Christmas Day of 1776, a nine, at least an eight- or nine-hour boat ride of, trans, of transporting troops acro- across the Delaware River to get to their journey that would lead to the surprise attack on the Hessians at Trenton, New Jersey, where a thousand Hessians were captured. And of course, as I have mentioned from other podcasts from different topics, that um, it wasn't just so much crossing the Delaware River, but the mission in capturing a thousand Hessians was so significant that it helped restore morale to the cause for independence to where had this event not taken place, the overall, um, what do you call it, cause for independence would have become extinguished. Basically, by the end of 1776, um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Battle of Trenton, I'll give you just a quick brief synopsis, was that um, a few months before December of that year, uh, Washington's army was on the run and in danger of um, utter destruction. Uh, the The battles at New York, most notably Fort Washington, Harlem Heights to uh, Brooklyn Heights were disastrous for the Army. Um, The British had pretty much brought in the whole nine yards of um, military. They had brought hundreds and hundreds of warships into New York Harbor. Uh, They brought a new new supply of men. Uh, Of course, you know, we had driven them out of Boston in March of 76, but what what they now are making us realize is that, okay, you, you drove us out of Boston, now we're going to go to New York, and we're going to really show you what the British Army is truly made up of, and that is to send the full garrison, that is thou- hundreds and let alone thousands of warships into New York Harbor to prove to you just how strong our might is and what we can impose upon you. So by late 1776, morale is at an all-time low, Enlistments are about ready to expire, um, and if that's not bad enough, there are already desertions, men leaving the Continental Army to go join the British. So, in in the winter, this is a period of time when um, fighting ceases to exist. But an informant, um, not just an informant, but someone who has been receiving information about 
not only just what's going on on the American side, but this is an informant who is even working with the Hessians. He relays information to Washington and tells him of an area in New Jersey where the Hessians are very vulnerable to an attack. And it's Trenton. And Trenton um, is a very, um, it's, it's close to Philadelphia, but it's a very prosperous uh, merchant town at this time uh, where goods are coming in left and right. But Trenton is not the same as Philadelphia because Trenton, there's only one way in and one way out in the city. So this informant has given Washington everything he needs, and Washington seizes the opportunity and basically tells his men only what's necessary about the mission, but Nathaniel Green is a part of this mission. And so you get a, we must remember it's very cold on Christmas Day, and Washington's men, many of them don't even know how to man uh, boats themselves, but thankfully part of this unit is uh, of men from Marblehead, Massachusetts, who, uh, have who are rowing most of these other men to and from the Delaware River in order to ensure that they um, accomplish the mission. So long story short, the Hessians were given multiple warnings about this um, plot that the Americans were going to wage on them, and their um, chief leader, Colonel Johann Rall, scoffed at every message that the informant himself, who had told Washington about where to strike. Basically, the informant was catching the Hessians off guard. The Hessians were drinking, they were toasting for Christmas, they had no respect for the American army in general because the Hessians had pretty much routed us at New York City. And if any of you all are wondering who are the Hessians, they are um, mercenaries from Germany, most notably from Hesse-Kassel, who are uh, fighting alongside the British as part of their service to the mother country. And, why are, and how are England and Germany related? Well, King George III's wife, Queen Charlotte, is from Mecklenburg, Germany. So that's where you get the British and German connection right there. So, in the end, we storm Trenton and capture nearly a thousand Hessian soldiers. And we only lose about two men. Had this event not happened... It's fair to say that even Nathaniel Green's legacy may not have been as solidified or even have come close to being solidified as it will be once he arrives to South Carolina. And not just to South Carolina, but to resurrect the Southern Continental Army. So it's fair to say that Nathaniel Green has been a part of history already and he is very close to rewriting history again, but in a different region of the war. But besides uh, Trenton, Henry uh, Nathaniel Green has also fought at the battles of Brandywine in Germantown, Pennsylvania, to Monmouth Courthouse, New Jersey, which that battle, being Monmouth Courthouse, was the last battle for the Northern Campaign. And after Monmouth, that is when the British revamped their... Um, new strategy to go south, as I had mentioned from the beginning of the series. So by late 1780, 
How many commanders had the Southern Continental Army seen come and go? Four. See, I always thought it was just Horatio Gates, but having reread what was uh, necessary for this presentation here made me remind myself that, hey, you had four commanders. Uh, Charles Lee was the first, and, that, and he was um, the first commander back from 1776 when the British had their uh, first invasion of the South go awry, meaning that it didn't go as planned. So Nathaniel Green will be commander number five. Um, hopefully this one is a permanent fix because I don't think the Southern Continental Army can take any more uh, commanders coming and going for all the wrong reasons. So when Nathaniel Green arrives into Charlotte, North Carolina, he saw a deject in my in my estimation or in my mind or let alone interpretation. Green saw a dejected group of men numbering around twenty three hundred. Only fifteen hundred were fit for duty, whereas the other eight hundred were adequately clothed and equipped. So when you're dejected, it's like giving up hope. To lose means to fail. To relinquish, to surrender. For Nathaniel Green, he knows that this can no longer go on. Otherwise, how are we going to get the British out, not only out of South Carolina, but out of the South and perhaps out of, uh, out of the United States of America? So, for Nathaniel Green, his first day on the job, being December 4th, he writes to men like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Francis Marion describing the state of the army. And it wasn't a good one, but yet he had to get his feelings off his chest. Well, let me ask you this. He writes to Marion, and I'm going to talk to you all about that here shortly, with writing to Marion. And remember, he's already... You know, Marion has written to uh, Horatio Gates more than once, and Gates didn't really respond back to many of Marion's letters, but it probably could be fair to say that if Nathaniel Green saw most of Marion's letters, he would get a very strong understanding of, of knowing one thing for sure, that, hey, there is somebody in South Carolina who knows how to fight, but he knows how to fight responsibly. So our bonus question, this next bonus question is going to be the following. Was Nathaniel Green an ardent fan of militia forces? I can understand why uh, John Aller said what he said in terms of how he describes this response. But, if, but pay very careful attention. Nathaniel Green often viewed militia forces as individuals whose ambitions concentrated on private gain to personal glory. In other words, personal satisfactions, personal objectives that only involve an individual but not the unit as a whole. So, basically, he sees militia forces as as a unit that is comprised of men who are only thinking about themselves, not, not the unit as a whole, but basically an I, me, myself mentality. Nathaniel Green knows that this has to change. 
and and I say this because he knows deep down that if the that if that British forces would never give up South Carolina until there were better ranking patriot forces in the field who possessed greater levels of commitment. In other words, remember as I had mentioned from previous podcast episodes that militiamen came and went as they pleased. They they didn't have any what do you call it five year commitment plans or let alone a one year commitment. They might be with their militia, their respective militia brigade at the very beginning of the month, but come month's end, up, oh, it's time for me to leave. I got to go back to my family. And as for when I'll be returning, I'll just decide that on my terms. So for Nathaniel Green, you know, he's he hasn't really dealt a lot with militia. If he has up north, it's been very, very small forces. But most of his commitments have been to continental forces who have that us-we-ourselves mentality. So, so did Nathaniel Green find Francis Marion's fighting tactics to be of good use, considering that Marion is in charge of the Williamsburg Township militia? Yes, Green had uh, responded in, to one of Marion's letters congratulating him on his uh, strategies that had been put into play. He liked how Marion had, um, he liked Marion's style of warfare fighting, being guerrilla or irregular, but he liked how Marion was successful in, in engaging in surprise um, attacks out of nowhere where he could catch the enemy off guard inflict casualties, not on a mass scale, but inflict casualties that were small scale to where over time the casualties would um, accumulate to where it would put the enemy at some form of disadvantage. In other words, this was a good way to inflict uh, casualties on the enemy versus having to always rely doing so on open field combat. Now, despite Green's current stance towards the militia, he and Francis Marion both will come to the realization that the Continental Army, along with the militia, would need one another in order to prevail down south. And that's true. Um, in other words, the Continental Army and the militia cannot afford to burn bridges with one another. Nathaniel Green is going to appreciate the fact that, well, I mean, he's already appreciated what Francis Marion has been doing, but he's going to continue to appreciate the fact that many of these militiamen under Marion's command know all the ins and outs of the of the uh, forest areas uh, where um, people can uh, maneuver around so quick to where they will find every opportunity to strike the enemy to strike at the enemy without the enemy not even knowing what's coming at them. So. For an outsider like Nathaniel Green, he's going to need uh, Francis Marion and his militia's, um, what do you call it, wisdom and knowledge on the terrain of South Carolina because this is Green's first time down south. And for most northerners coming south in, the, in, in fighting a war, it is a, it, 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 how, do you, how do I say it? It's a, um, not a setback, but it's a huge change in adjustment. You know, fighting, say, at Saratoga or Trenton were 
the landscapes there were much different compared to the south. Because think about it, you don't have a lot of swamps and marshes in New York State compared to uh, South Carolina. And whereas up north in New York, you could get around not only by boat or ferry, but also by uh, horse and buggy. We're not just traditional horse and buggy, but you have other means to get around better. But down south, he's going to realize that one of the reasons why Francis Marion and his men have done so well maneuvering and eluding the British is because they can get get um, around by ferry much faster, and then they can burn ferry boats so that the British themselves do not have access to get to point A from point A to point B by water as easily as Marion's men did. Now, unlike Horatio Gates, who did not appreciate the militia or let alone did not even consider that the militia and the Continental Army would need one another, Nathaniel Green isn't going to make that mistake. He's far more interested in how the current situation can be improved, unlike Gates, who never responded back to many of Marion's letters. <laughs> I think Horatio Gates was a lost cause. Um, he was part of that I, me, myself mentality, um, a huge micromanager to say the least, trying to do everything on his own and very resentful of other people offering, wanting to offer help or let alone bring their knowledge into the picture to, to help him, what do you call it, re-strategize a battle that has potential to go wrong and yet it did, as we saw at Camden as well as at Fishing Creek. Our next bonus question is the following. What was one of Nathaniel Green's immediate requests to Francis Marion? And this is important. Obtaining spies. And Nathaniel Green, this is in quotes, said the following with regards to spies. Spies are the eyes of an army. How, do, how did I go about interpreting this? Spies are always on the lookout for surprises, big and small, that help ensure an army is safe when venturing into territory they are either familiar with or vice versa. Spies need to know the ins and outs of an enemy, knowing their strengths along with weaknesses, including commanding officers. Why the officers? Because we, the spies need to know what, what the, their army or let alone the army for whom they, they're spying for, could be going up against. What are the commanding officer's personal strengths and weaknesses? So without spies, how can anybody, regardless of what side you're on, go about being one step ahead so that they can either thwart an ambush or thwart an attack that could... Um, that could lead to the capture of hundreds of men to where there not, may not even be an army alone that could even protect its people. And we're not just talking about the, the soldiers below. We're talking about residents of a community, plantations along a river. The bottom line is, is that spies are not just confined what we're going to learn here shortly is that spies are not just confined to the military purposes. Spies are 
are can pertain to those in the community looking after the military. It's what I call a symbiotic relationship. Both sides are helping each other out. But in order to successfully do that, neither side could afford to burn bridges. So where would Marion and his men camp for the seventeen for the winter of 1780? It was at a place called Snows Island, located in the southeast corner of present-day Florence County, uh, not too terribly far from Myrtle Beach or Georgetown. It was accessible only by water and protected by an assortment of trees. So how do you go about, if you're Francis Marion, how would you go about preventing surprise attacks? Well, Marion's men established redoubts, or what we call the earthworks, from different directions to help enhance security in moving from point A to point B. So it's one thing to build a, an earthwork somewhere, but wouldn't it be smart to have uh, fortifications in all directions? Because, look, you can't just assume that an enemy would come in one direction. An enemy can come from any direction. And if you're not careful, yeah, you could be ambushed. You could, um, you could have everything destroyed that you worked um, hard in preparation for. But if you didn't uh, fortify it well from the other um, angles, then you were a sitting duck the whole time. Now, what's interesting about Snow's Island is that it was a community dominated by Whigs, whom provided Marion's forces with food and supplies. Think about it. It's one thing to live in a community, but if you care enough about what is going on in the war, and if, especially if you're siding with the Patriots, then yes, you will do everything there is in your power to look after those people, because for all, for all we know, some of those people fighting could be your own dear friends. And if it were the opposite, they would be doing the same for you. So the Snow, I Snow Island inhabitants were both stewards and spies, which Marion had the utmost respect for. Marion and his men took only what was necessary. Okay, so hey, if you do need supplies, it's one thing. But is it fair to take everyone's supplies from the community as a whole? Perhaps not, because those people need supplies to get them through the winter, but just supplies in general to ensure that, that, um, that their well-being has not been forgotten. Now, um, most of you probably know the movie The Patriot that came out 20 years ago. And while, yes, it took place in South Carolina, there was a scene where um, Mel Gibson, who played Benjamin Martin, he and his... Um, ragtag militia band group stopped at a um, like the equivalent of a general store but it turns out it was um, owned by a fellow named Mr. Um, Peter Howard and, Pete, and the fellow who played Mr. Peter Howard said to Mel Gibson who was Benjamin Martin he said you know Benjamin you'll pay me with what you can when you can in other words I'm obliged to help you for the cause that we're in, but right now focus on how you need to go about providing for your men, and whatever is left over in the end, re just return those goods back to me, and we're even. So 
remember this, folks. Um, it's one thing to protect a community, but the community itself has to be looking out for one another. And that comes from all ranks of society, not just military, but just everyday people. And that's how you build trust. That's how you build respect. If you want someone to respect you, you have to be willing to uh, give them something in return. So Marion and his men did just that. Um, by only taking what was necessary, they gave the Patriot citizens receipts for supplies taken from them. Marion offered the people security and protection from Tory military leaders like Micah Jogany and Jesse Bearfield, whom I had mentioned from previous podcast. But Marion's successful relationship with Snow's Island Whig community enabled him to become the first guerrilla warfare leader to understand the importance behind moral, material, and intelligence support from the local civilian population. I say that this is important because when we often think of guerrilla warfare fighting in today's time, and maybe this had happened in years past, but when we think of guerrilla warfare, we for, I think those who are engaged in guerrilla warfare, all they care about is getting revenge on the enemy. Once they've killed who they've wanted to take out, they go to their next target and do the same thing. They, um, they're, they're not um, understanding the lessons that are um, that the greater lessons. In other words, they're so focused on themselves that they're living in the moment, and that's all they care about. Francis Marion basically was not the type of person who wanted to live in the moment. He was very grateful for the sacrifices that the Whig community at Snow's Island um, provided for him, but yet he did not want to burn bridges within the community. So in other words, by going out of his way to um, give those um, members of the community receipts for supplies taken from them, it was his way of saying, hey, the, the, you, you didn't give this to us just because you felt like it. You did it because you, you know that we are putting our own lives on the line so that you all can live in freedom. The, one of the mistakes that the British made was that they always resorted to tactics of threats and violence against the communities. They weren't interested in establishing any kind of um, long-term relationship to where, okay, if you provide us with the, with the, the basic necessities of food and, and clothing, we'll provide you all this stuff in return. Usually, if they wanted to offer you anything, they'd say, hey, if you, um, if you show your loyalties to us, then we will um, see to it that you, are, um, that you are guaranteed safe haven from the crown. Or in the case of slaves, they would say, hey, if you leave um, your home, then you will be granted your freedom from within the crown. So the bottom line is, with um, the British, there was never really any... Um, equilibrium in terms of in terms of a hierarchy from within that they ha could um, build respect and trust upon all they could resort to is violence intimidation and threats 
Francis Marion didn't do that. But on the other hand, if you look at his partner, uh, Thomas Sumter, who was fighting in the northwestern part of South Carolina, Sumter was the opposite, and that's what Nathaniel Green didn't like about Sumter. Sumter was still engaged in the mentality of, well, it's not a problem to burn people's homes to get some payback on them if they committed wrongs against not just myself, but from any of my men below me. That's not how you build trust uh, within the community, especially from your own rank. Because um, history, I think it's fair to say that even Whigs themselves um, had disagreements to the point where they um, engaged in an eye-for-an-eye mentality amongst each other. But to end uh, this episode, I'm going to share with you all the following. Is it fair to say that 1780 had been a bloody year in South Carolina? Yes. Given that a thousand patriots were killed in combat, nearly 66% of those deaths were in South Carolina. That definitely exceeds the 50% threshold mark, but 66% of the thousand patriots killed in combat in 1780 were in South Carolina. That is a very, uh, very frightening number. 90%, but 90% of the 2,000 Patriots wounded in action were from South Carolina. But 1781 would, will become worse. And we'll talk more about 1781 going onward in the next uh, episode. I think it should be pointed out now, uh, and I probably might mention it again, but I'll just tell you all this now, if most of you all are not familiar with this. South Carolina saw more casualties in the American Revolution than any other state. About 20% in the end, I think it's fair to say about 20% of all the casualties in the end were from South Carolina when the war was all said and done with. 20% doesn't seem high, but you know, when you have to think about it, we got 13 colonies at this time. Not every state is seeing activity at the same time. But that 20% was not, probably was not all confined to just British military forces inflicting harm on the Americans. That 20% was inflicted by people from within the state of South Carolina. South Carolina Whigs and uh, Tories going after each other. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and um, thank heavens now that we've got a new leader in South Carolina who does value Francis Marion for who he is. And it is fair to say that Francis Marion values Nathaniel Green. I think Nathaniel Green was, was a very, very logical choice, but it was George Washington who so badly wanted Nathaniel Green to come to South Carolina all along. And finally, in 1780, in October of that year, the, Conti the Continental Congress finally gave Washington the right to appoint his own commander without having to rely on um, people above him in Congress to make the decision for him. I really have to wonder now, had Nathaniel Green come to, had Nathaniel Green been appointed commander of the Southern Continental Army earlier, because the man who was the commander of the Continental Army before Horatio Gates was Benjamin Lincoln, 
who unfortunately was responsible for the debacle at Charleston that led to the ultimate surrender of that um, port city. Um, I, I just wonder if Nathaniel Green had been um, in charge earlier. Who's to say that maybe Charleston still would have been in American hands? And if there had been a battle at Camden, would it have gone much differently? I think it's fair to say yes. As a matter of fact, even one historian said Nathaniel Green learned the terrain of South Carolina much faster than many of the British, the most experienced British officers. It's probably fair to say Nathaniel Green didn't miss out on a whole lot. Well, we've covered, again, we've covered a lot of ground. I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. I hope to be back on the air again uh, before uh, Christmas. So um, thank you again to all of you who have been listening to my podcasts. Uh, if it weren't for you all, I'm not sure where I would be right now with this, but, uh, but it has been a, a great ride, and the ride will continue um, to keep getting better. And if, for those of you out there who know of people who would like to listen to Anchor, tell them to come on. It's free. And if they want to do podcasting, tell them that the opportunities are limitless. Thank you again, and stay safe. And wherever you all are, whether it's daytime or nighttime, I'll just say this, good day and good night.